I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> Every day I would ask myself, Shell, are you sure? Are you sure? The voice in my head was, oh my God, what are people going to think? They're going to think that I'm not reliable. They're going to think that I, I'm ABC. Passion coaching does not seem a legitimate profession. I knew there's not a morsel of doubt in my body that this is the work that I am meant to do. Right, so I guess I can finally say that this is official. Welcome everyone to the first episode of How They're Doing It. Today's conversation is with Shilvi Dalla Kim, who is a passion coach for entrepreneurs, community builders, and change makers. She's worked on a lot of amazing projects and I could go on and on about all the amazing work she's done. So if you're interested in that part, you can go ahead and check her website, which I'll link in the description of this podcast. But for today, we will be talking about Shelby's journey to becoming a passion coach and beyond. As an Asian immigrant to Canada, we talk about the hate and discrimination her family faced, how that frustration and anger as a result was channeled into a passion project in university, and despite not knowing exactly what career she wanted to pursue and years and years of circling back and forth between a variety of different positions, she found her passion in coaching others to find theirs. However, like everything else, it did not stop there. With the label of being a passion coach comes buckets of reactions, financial dilemmas, and fears. Did Shelby ever overcome these obstacles? And if she did, how did she overcome them? I truly loved having this conversation with Shelby and I cannot wait for you guys to join in as well. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Shelby. It's so nice to be reconnected with you again. How are you? I'm doing well, all things considered. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. All right. So I would say that it's very easy for anyone to do like a quick Google search of your name and look at your website and the things that you've worked on, some of the projects that you've done, some of the things that you offer and so on and so forth. But I always want to know how people became the people that they are. And so why don't we start by going back in time and looking at who you were as a child, some of the experiences that you grew up with. So why don't you start by telling us where you're from? Sure. So I was born in Sydney, Australia, um, and my parents moved back to South Korea where they're from. And so my childhood was in uh, Korea. I was there until I was eight years old and then moved to Canada at that point. Um, and my childhood was filled with lots of family time. I remember um, some of the ways that I would play as a child is um, going around and singing songs with friends and making up songs. Um, I was a child that had a lot of creativity and a lot of energy. Um, but also during my childhood, my parents worked a lot. So it provided opportunities for me to experiment with different things, you know, while they weren't home. Um, but also super grateful to my parents for having worked so much so that we were able to eventually find our way to Canada. 
And being in Toronto, Canada, I have an experience as an immigrant and also witnessing and watching my parents in different ways face multiple barriers structurally, culturally, language-wise. But also, uh, they've really instilled in me the importance of gratitude for small things in life. Um, And so I I grew up with that gratitude and grew up with that acknowledgement of the sacrifices that they made to come to Canada, uh, leave everything behind so that my my sister and I can have um, a life here. While at the same time growing up in Canada, I have been unlearning as well as learning my role as a settler on this land, being being on Turtle Island. So that has been a Uh, emotional and cognitive dissonance for me, being able to hold that space for gratitude, but hold also the space for the ways that I benefit from the systems and laws and practices and cultures um, that harm Indigenous communities and how I play a role in that. And so trying to unlearn and 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 figure out what is my responsibility as an individual but also as an asian woman as an immigrant being here um has been also something that's a, a journey that i've been on so it sounds like you've also grown in a very passionate family how has that influenced you as a child and then slowly as you grew up yes so my mom is an entrepreneur she has envisioned and led many small businesses throughout her life, including in Canada, but also here, uh, sorry, including in Korea and also in Canada. And so one of the ways that my mom has taught me uh, on how to uh, live my day to day from a place of passion is that she wakes up in the morning with so much gratitude and she goes to work and loves work regardless of what it is that she's doing. And she's always reminding me that it's your, your attitude is so important and how you approach life. And mind you, my mom is also uh, running a fast food restaurant at the moment called Fresh Italian Eatery. And and because of the pandemic has also have had to face many um, struggles um, that has impacted small business owners. And so you know, amidst all those challenges, she still holds on to uh, this practice of gratitude. And that has really shaped me in the ways that I also look at challenges, as well as tools for me to to hold on to hope, hold on to gratitude and uh, use that for change. Um, and then my dad is a minimalist. So he's designed the life where he can be minimalist. He's a self-proclaimed outsider. So he likes to observe, to witness, um, to learn, and also be critical uh, with deep and powerful and hard questions around how our society is or is moving towards. And so he has been a huge influence because he has constantly taught me to not take things for what they are, but ask hard questions and discern what I believe are truths for me or discern what I believe are values that I um, hold important. Or um, yeah, so he, he, he's been able to really push me to think outside of the box, but not, not just to think outside the box, but to really live outside the box um, because he does that. And then my sister, Honey Kim, um, she's a frontline youth worker and works with youth who face multiple structural barriers. And she um, describes her job as her soulmate job. And I have learned a lot from her, the ways in which she would think about what 
was important, um, make decisions that were hard in terms of her job, but now get to a place where she's found the job that is aligned with the things that are most important to her. And so she's been a massive influence. And then finally, I will say there's so many people, um, but for today, I wanted to share my muse, my husband, Adil Dalakim. He's a community builder, social entrepreneur. And right now he is co-creating with an incredible team. They're uh, launching a retreat space in Toronto for people like you and me, for adults to just play. And so I am very privileged to be part of a family who inspires me and who influences me to also think about what matters most for me and to believe that I can have a life um, where my passion can roam free. It's so nice to see that you're surrounded by a community who like pushes you forward to, you know, be aspiring for change and being able to explore the things that you're interested in and being surrounded by those things. I think that's very powerful. And it's nice to have that kind of community around you. Oh, community is so key. That That is one thing. If I didn't have community, I would not be able to weather some of the storms that I've had and will continue to have in my life. And um, I think community has also allowed me to um, see areas where I need to grow, see areas where I need to heal, see areas where I uh, have made mistakes so that I can continue to become a better, better person. And community is also where you go to be able to also make mistakes so that in a non-judgmental space, hopefully, so that you can figure out for yourself how you can change. And so without this community and that support, um, I don't think I've been able to navigate some of the complex realities to get to a place where I feel more comfortable and confident in, in who I am. Yeah. So you were in Korea until during your childhood time. When you were told that you're going to move to Canada, how did things change in your head? Like, what was your reaction to that? I know you were still a child, but what were some of the things that you thought about? Oh, I was so excited. I had no idea <laughs> what that meant, but I was so excited. And the first thought I remember having is snow because um, in the part of Korea where we grew up, there wasn't a lot of snow. And so that idea to me felt interesting and exciting and different. And so I remember being excited. Um, and then the way that we moved to Canada, it was staggered. So my dad and I came here first and then my sister and my mom came after. So um, I remember saying goodbye to all of our friends and our families in Korea. So that was really hard. And then when I came to Canada, the first couple of months, I was so lonely. I wanted my sister here. I, I felt, you know, I felt isolated, but also everything was different. So while it was exciting in some ways, it was also very scary in other ways. And I remember telling myself the first person to send me a letter is going to be a best friend for the rest of my life. <laughs> and one of my friends in Korea, her name is Hoyani. She sent me a handwritten letter, you know, back, back in those days, we still sent letters to each other. And the moment I got that letter, it, it, it reminded me that I wasn't alone, that um, there were people like Soyani in my life. And I think moving to Canada was very difficult because I didn't um, have that community support, which I mentioned is very important. 
But being anchored in people like Swayani, even though we were far from each other, allowed me to remember that I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. And then would you say that moving to Canada has really influenced like the person that you grew up to be? Like if you weren't to have moved or immigrated to Canada, would you have went through those like experiences and would you have wanted to build that kind of community that you have now? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, because obviously moving to Canada has had such a huge impact on who I have become from my language, the way I think, to the way I approach the world, to the uh, possibilities that exist, but also barriers that exist. It's, it's very different by virtue of being here. But the question around, would I have built a similar type of community if I were back in Korea and not here? I, it's interesting. I'm not sure. I don't know who I would have become. I would definitely be different because uh, socially, societally, there's difference. But I wonder if there's also core elements of who I am or my essence of being that would have remained the same and how that manifests in terms of the kind of community I would have built there is a question mark. I'm not sure. Yeah, I bring that up because I've had a similar story too. like I moved to Canada when I was 14 years old. And so it was also at a point in my life where I was still like a child. The only thing I thought about when I was moving to Canada is snow and that I'll have a fresh start with new friends and things like that. So to me, that was exciting. But obviously, like I grew up here. And so a lot of my personal growth happened here. So sometimes I think back, I'm like, if I was there back then and like I stayed there, would I have grown up to be the same person? And that's the thing with life, right? There's so many possible realities Mm -hmm. that could happen at any moment, right? Mm-hmm. And the different choices we make lead to such different and sometimes vastly different um, scenarios or outcomes. And we never we don't know. So once you moved to Canada, I know I've heard from a previous interview that there was an incident where, you know, your parents started a convenience store and on their first day opening it, they were encountered by a man who was with a gun and his intention was to steal. You were still young at that time, but having heard and witnessed something like that when you first moved to a new place, what did that feel like? Well, at that point in time, I was so young that that story didn't fully register. It was actually um, recently when I was talking to my parents about their experience with the store. And my mom told me that story of the first day that they opened up the store and there was somebody with a gun that I think as an adult hearing that I had more empathy and it really dawned on me how, how emotionally uh, difficult that time must've been, but not just difficulties, the ways we think about, you know, running a store, but also emotions around fear and sense of threat to one's livelihood and safety uh, that came about by virtue of that incident. Um, And also I was writing that story during a time when anti-Asian racism, violence, incidents and stories were being amplified throughout North America. And so that story really, really hit home. Um, And even now when I'm talking about it, it's hard for me to process out loud, but um, there's definitely, I think that my mom retelling that story definitely made me empathize with their hardship a lot more and also made it more real that there's systemic 
problems around racism that impacts many different communities. And I did not have language or the awareness when I was young to uh, be able to point it out. But now as an adult, reliving that memory uh, through my mom's story helped me see that it has been all around us. Mm -hmm. So when you were when you started growing up after those incidences, have you had any firsthand experiences with sorts of discrimination or, you know, hate of any kind? There have been many instances. Uh, one in particular was in university. I was walking home from school and there was a group of people standing across the street from me and one of them hurled a racist comment, which I'm not going to say it right now, but they said something racist. And often when I hear that, I'll just walk away and like, okay, whatever. Um, but that day, something came over me. I remember standing there and I had this almost like this like fire lit in my belly. And I walked right over to that person and looked at him directly in the eyes. And I told him, you can't say that. That's racist. And I remember turning around and walking away and the group of people started laughing at me behind my back. And even though obviously that was humili humiliating in some ways, I um, knew in that moment through that action of me telling him that's not okay, that I had to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so that catalyzed um, for me a desire to collaborate with some friends, Olivia Perdana, Vanessa Lee, Shazi Abji, and I co-created this, uh, this fashion show called Synesthesia, where we used art, fashion, dance, uh, music to create experiences that would challenge some of the stereotypes and that exist around the Asian continent, which is the largest continent in the world, by the way. And we use that as an, a way to celebrate diversity and mm -hmm. complexities of the Asian continent. And we also raise money through that for Asian charities. And so throughout my life, you know, I could even tell you one from last week, I have had instances of uh, anti-Asian racism, whether it's uh, overt and explicit to very subtle, that's sometimes hard, but very insidious. And over time, I've become more and more aware of how that manifests in my relationships, in, in the workplace, society writ large, but also laws and systems. But also throughout that time, I've been able to tap into my passions mm -hmm. for change because I was not okay uh, with that status quo. Would you say that the incident that you had in university was your first incident where you channeled your passion towards social change? Yeah. So what, so what happened was, so tapping into that passion, passion is an energy, right? It's this mm -hmm. source of energy that moves somebody towards action. And so that day when that energy made me move towards action and finding collaborators and co-creating this platform where we can raise awareness and raise funds and also have fun while doing it. That process also allowed for us to um, be around values aligned people. It allowed us to have shared North Star 
And then in between now and that North Star, all this magic and awesomeness and randomness happened to make the fashion show Mm -hmm. happen. (laughs) Um, It also came with challenges. It also came with, you know, moments where we wanted to give up. It also came with triumph where we did things that we didn't think were possible. And through that experience, I saw, I saw the power of passion, what happens when people come together through shared passions and what happens for me individually, where I was able to transform my rage at injustice towards something that I thought would have positive impact. And so that was my first foray into not only understanding it intellectually, but really feeling and seeing the power of passion. And then ever since then, I've been experimenting with passion as a design principle. What happens when I optimize for passions in my working relationships? I optimize for passion in my projects. I optimize for passion in in the ways that we work. And over time, I've learned uh, parts of it that works, parts of it that don't, parts of it that can be amplified, parts of it that needs to be looked at, examined, and also broken down so that we can ensure that um, healthy, harmonious passions are what can drive but also gel teams together towards a shared purpose. Now, if we go back a little bit, would you say that this is something you knew you wanted to be a part of? while you were going into university? I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. (laughs) Um, And and in fact, I thought at some point, maybe law school, because that was really the only, at that time, I thought what was the only viable path for me because I was drawn to international development studies. So Mm -hmm. that's what I studied. And I was drawn to uh, something called Arts Legacy that we had at McGill University, which was a first year program where we um, learned in a more intimate setting and we were able to look at different topics, but more from a creative, holistic way. And so during this time, I didn't know what career paths existed other than what I've been taught by my parents and by my community doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so I didn't want to be a doctor because I was not good at math and science. Engineer, I thought that was, again, too hard for me. And so I thought, okay, maybe a lawyer, but that also seemed really, really hard. And so I, I didn't know what I was doing. I thought maybe law would be a path for me. But the way that I stumbled upon synesthesia and passion was really, again, that that source of energy that was undeniable, mm-hmm. a source of energy that got me to go from being silent to action. And mm-hmm. once the action happens and you see what is possible through acting on that energy, it's hard for, it was very hard for me to go back. Mm-hmm. You saw that energy, you recognized it, and you acted on it. Something that a lot of people might not necessarily decide to do. Definitely. So then how do you say you connected with your passion towards coaching people to find their passion? This is a very long story, and (laughs) it is not linear. (laughs) I'd like to hear it. Okay. It's a very messy, convoluted story, but um, basically... The last 10 years, I've been using passion as a design principle, as I mentioned to you, Mm -hmm. the ways that I would think about projects and the ways that I would think about team collaborations and the ways that I would think about the kind of careers 
uh, that I wanted to experiment with and explore. And during this time, um, I've worked with nonprofits, social enterprises, pioneering co-working space. I worked as a community builder in a neighborhood going through revitalization. Um, I worked um, as a volunteer for different organizations, organizing around cannabis amnesty education and policy reform. So I, I tried a lot of different things. And for me, what was important was to use wonder and curiosity to see what, what are the possibilities that exist? Because otherwise, how would I know, mm-hmm. you know, how would I know what I gravitate towards unless I um, tried them out? And so um, I remember right after university, you know, so many of my friends were getting jobs. So many of them were getting um, opportunities, you know, ones that allowed for financial security, ones that also uh, provided social status. And here I was not knowing what I was going to do with my life. And one of the questions that I hated the most was when somebody asked you, what do you do? But I told myself I would give myself one year because I needed some kind of timeline. Although that one year really turned into 10 years, but I told myself I would give myself one year to try a bunch of different things because I really didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted, but I didn't know what I was good at. I didn't know what I cared deeply about. So Mm -hmm. I gave myself that year to try being, you know, I I, I worked at a restaurant. I um, was filing papers and doing support work for a constituency office for a member of parliament. I was uh, working for a startup, going around selling discount cards for eco-friendly stores. I did I did a whole bunch of things, and so that spirit of wonder and curiosity was carried forward into my last ten years. And as I've been doing that, I've been able to discern: okay, what are the tasks and responsibilities that give me energy? Mm-hmm. What are the tasks and responsibilities that drain my energy? And obviously there's nuance to that because sometimes it's contextual, sometimes it's relational, but it allowed me over the last 10 years to get data on what made me feel alive. And then the part that's been really interesting, and I would say one of the harder, more difficult things was to see my gifts. Mm-hmm. I have so much imposter syndrome and saboteurs, which is what some, uh, which is what Shazad Shamin speaks about. There are these beliefs, internal beliefs, that's also by virtue of our structural manifestations that get internalized over time into me thinking that I'm not good enough, that I'm not smart enough, that I'm not a leader, that I'm not ABC. And so those thoughts and beliefs have sabotaged Mm -hmm. my gifts and my potential. And it is so insidious and so hidden that sometimes it's so hard to see or hard to recognize. And it was through so many conversations, so many different ways of assessing my talents and my leadership qualities. It was, it was so, um, a lot of mirroring from friends and family and community to show me, to mirror back my strengths. And then also constantly, constantly unrooting these belief systems that I was able to finally say, huh, if I look back at the last 10 years, something that I do naturally, something that I would do 
without getting paid, something that I do with friends and family, something that I love doing, something that makes me feel a lot, something that I'm really good at. And not only that, something that I'm willing to continue to get better at because I'm mm-hmm. so interested in it was passion coaching, creating spaces where people can come alive and for me to witness them, see their brilliance and then hold it back as a mirror. So they see themselves. Mm-hmm. And once that experience of passion coaching and once that practice of passion uh, coaching became more formalized, I knew there's not a morsel of doubt in my body that this is the work that I am meant to do. And it's so nice to see that you were able to, in a way, give back to your community and give back by giving people what you needed at the time when you were exploring your own passion and your own self. Because I was thinking about it it is so hard to break out of that whole internal barrier stuff and just admit to yourself what you want and what you are aspiring to do and like being honest to yourself. It's so hard to be, yeah, to be honest to yourself. You're so right. Cause also we live in a society where we were taught that white lies are okay. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reason why it's hard for us to be honest for different power dynamic reasons, because when we speak up and say something honest, then we get punished for it, for example. Um, So being honest is very hard. And also because of our conditioning, there's so many layers of social conditioning around what our society wants, what our community wants of us, what our families want of Mm -hmm. us, what our, you know, our mentors want of us, that it's hard for us to really listen to what we might truly want. Mm -hmm. And so that honesty is very difficult. And that honesty can help us be able to realign with the things that make us feel alive, Mm -hmm. uh, be able to embrace our gifts. Right. And that is why I'm so passionate about passion because passion is an access point to honesty. It's an energy, right? So then again, if you feel it, you feel it. Mm -hmm. And there's something there for you to learn from that energy. Yeah. And from there, you might be able to find some more honesty. It's nice to be surrounded by people who are passionate. If your community is very not passionate about what they do and are very like trapped into those internalized barriers, then it's harder to be able to break out of it yourself. Yes. And here's the thing, too, right? In our society, because of the way it's been designed and the structural barriers and Mm -hmm. obstacles, there are very hard and difficult barriers and obstacles that exist for different communities by virtue of our social identities or social locations. Mm -hmm. And so being able to follow our passion is and can be a form of privilege. So that's also really important for us to acknowledge And at the same time, I have seen over the last 10 years, so many people who face so many challenges, right? Single moms, uh, people who have historical trauma and contemporary laws that uh, oppress them. And yet these folks are able to use their passions for change Mm -hmm. to not only change their circumstance, but be able to also amplify and support their communities. And I've seen that again and again and again. And this is why I think, yes, we need to ensure that people collaborate to look at the ways that there are structural barriers that exist, which means that for some folks are not able to work and do the things that give them passion or they feel the associated feelings with passion. 
and that we're constantly looking at the internalized barriers that exist that tell us that we can't live a life full of passion. And finally, be able to honor that passion exists in all of us. Mm -hmm. That fire exists in all of us. And we all have a right to be able to experience and feel that passion. And then how would you say one can get over, because experiencing maybe emotions like this could be uncomfortable at first, especially when you don't understand what they mean. So how do you get over that fear and then discomfort of experiencing those emotions and then acting on them? That's a really good question. I think that this is where community is really key. Bell Hook says that we heal in communion. It's not an isolated act. And so what does it look like? Who are the people that create a safer and braver space for us to be able to feel our emotions Mm -hmm. and not just feel sometimes be able to express our emotions in a space that's non-judgmental, right? And some of these emotions could be joy, but sometimes it's rage. There's so much to be enraged about right now, you know? And so sometimes it's grief. There's so much sadness right now. And so uh, what are the different needs that an individual has in order for them to feel safer, braver, to be able to express and feel those feelings? Um, And for me, it has been community. It has been people who I trust, people who hold a non-judgmental space, people who can relate, who have held that space for me. And through that, I've been able to feel more and to get more connected to those emotions, which then allows me to act on those emotions from Mm -hmm. from a conscious lens. Yeah. And I honestly think it's like those emotions of like anger and frustration that really do push you to want to change things and not be happy with how things are. Exactly. Exactly. So I would say that you've worked with a lot of people as a passion coach and I wanted to ask, what do you think you've learned from these people personally? There are so many things that I've learned from people that I've worked with. I would say one is that we are all powerful. Every single one of us is powerful. Two is that there are so many structural internalized barriers that uh, make us forget about our power and agency. And positionally, there are Uh, barriers that mean that it takes more effort and more risk for people to be able to assert their power. Mm -hmm. And so that's obviously a problem. So how do we make sure that we are designing and creating and building a world where people can just be and be in their power and not have to dismantle systems that obstruct or suppress our power? Would you say that these people that you've worked with have influenced your awareness of the world around you even more than your awareness that has already increased from your journey to becoming a passion coach? Oh, 100%. Hands down. Yeah. Every conversation and every person that I work with, there's uh, more awareness that comes from um, and more learning that comes from our work together, for sure. Because the coaching experience is creating that braver space, that safer space for the two of us to be able to witness each other, but also to be more honest with each other, right? And my role is to create a container where um, I can ask powerful questions and uh, prompts so that 
the person can access their memories, access feelings and emotions and body responses to help them better understand what they're passionate about. But it's the alchemy of the two of us that allows for further awareness on the values that they hold and then also the values that I hold. And then through that, we're able to have deeper conversations around what matters in the world. And so definitely um, these experiences allow for deeper understanding. Now, I'm about to ask you a question that might be like a little contradictory, but do you think there is such thing as too much awareness? I can add a little bit of context to that. So if that'll help, but that's something I also think about often. It's that, so we're getting in a, which is really good that we're in a, at a generation at a point in time where we're increasingly more aware of the things that are around us, what's happening in the world. And that's greatly because of, you know, social media and people being more open about the things that they're experiencing. And then, you know, starting to slowly become more aware of our own selves and our own role in society. But do you think that at some point we might be a little too aware where everything that's being said, everything that's being done, we always have to overanalyze it in a way to think that maybe what they're doing is like, oh, it could be offensive to this person. It could be offensive to this group of people, like always questioning what we're doing because of that awareness. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So two thoughts come up for me. One is I think that we're moving towards more awareness and then it's going to become easier. So right now with more awareness, it feels like it's more labor to do a lot of that analysis and uh, being Mm -hmm. more considerate and looking at it from all angles. So right now, because we're learning that skill, it feels like it's a lot when in reality, I think that the more we practice it, the easier it'll become to the point that it won't be considered too much. It'll just be, you know, but, but, Another way to answer this question is in the social innovation space for some social innovators who are affecting systems level change. One of the key ingredients for why many um, social innovators have been able to do what they do is because a bit of a a little bit of naivete. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that sometimes when we are too aware of the barriers and the risks involved with starting something, it may make us feel um, like it's too daunting or um, I'm not going to do that because there's all of these very Mm -hmm. valid and rational reasons why this will be difficult. And that can be an impediment for us trying things. Um, So that's where I, I can see how too much awareness could play a role where it's an impediment. But with anything, I, I think it's very nuanced and it's very contextual and yeah, and it depends. When you decided to become a passion coach and you've formalized it, like that's what you want to do and that's what you want to help people with. How did people around you react to that? Because obviously passion coaching is not the first thing that would come to mind when you're thinking of a profession or a jo- or a career you know, kind of thing. So how did others react to that? in your perspective? And how did it make you feel? Yeah. So there were three, I would say, common reactions that I got from people. One was judgment because I went from working at a policy think tank at a university to deep diving into passion coaching, right? Mm-hmm. So it seemed let field, but also passion coaching does not seem um, for some people a legitimate profession. And so there was judgment. The second bucket of reactions was people who have worked with me, who have experienced 
passion coaching, affirming it and saying, chill, this is so you. (laughs) Um, And then the third reaction was more of an internal battle Mm -hmm. with myself. Um, It it was mostly around money. So I knew this was the work that I wanted to do. I knew that this was a, a career path that I can continue to grow in. So I committed to that. But the part that I was having a hard time committing around is, will I make enough money? Right. And how do I market myself and business development and some of these things I really don't like doing? I don't like sales. And so how do I ensure that I can make enough money is a question that I'm still grappling with, but also one that I have more comfort and confidence growing in um, because of some of the work that I've been doing around you know, creating a business model and actually testing the market before launching the business, et cetera, et cetera. So the internal battle of uh, will I make enough money was also you know, a reaction when I thought maybe this is the path that I could go on every day. I would ask myself, Shall are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> uh, but that, that voice is now a lot quieter because I am showing myself that it's possible. For You said one of the experiences that you had was feelings of judgment. How did you get over those? Community. And that's where community plays a role, right? Community is key. And and again, when I say community, sometimes some of your best friends from childhood are not part of that community because they might they might not understand what you're doing. And that's totally fine. But mm-hmm. also I also have to be mindful, right? Or it could be, you know, some some of your family members might not be part of that community. Um, and so being intentional about who's part of that community, who sees what you're doing or will support what you're doing and be a cheerleader for you uh, while also keeping you accountable, because mm-hmm. I also want a community that will um, ensure that I'm growing, that when I'm making mistakes that I change, that will hold, hold me accountable to the values that I am trying to practice. And so community has been instrumental I, I honestly, there are so many days where, you know, I feel like I can't do it or I'm not smart enough or I'm not a ABC. And, you know, I would call a friend who's part of that community for a pep talk. Right. Um, when negotiating, a, 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 you know, contract value and the question around money comes in, there's a lot of internalized conditioning mm-hmm. that comes up and insecurities that come up around how much am I worth? Can I actually ask for what I think I'm worth or blah, 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 blah. And those moments, having a community of people who will help you um, sort through all that so that you can see your worth and you're asking for your worth, but from a place of power and love is so instrumental. Mm-hmm. My husband, he is one of the greatest supports out there. And he helps me see when I'm sabotaging myself. And I do it all the time, even in my language, the ways that I talk about my work, I will edit myself out of the leadership role that I had. And so it's very subtle, but it happens. And so, you know, who is part of your community that will support you and be there with you for the highs and lows has been instrumental. What I find very cool is that every person I've talked to so far that I like interviewed for this podcast emphasized the importance of having that community and the importance of having your cheerleaders to help you and when those times where you're self-sabotaging and like being able to spot that and try to take you away from it. And I've talked to someone else too. She was she studied engineering, but ended up being a business coach because she found her passion in that area. And she was talking about how if you can't find cheerleaders 
in your community, you can learn to become your own at first and then slowly work on becoming and building that community of yourself. It's still pretty hard to find, you know, work on finding the people that you want to surround yourself with. Yeah, it is definitely hard, especially with COVID. And I really like that point about becoming your own cheerleader. Obviously, there's Uh, different tools that exist out there, like affirmations. My friend Shazia Abji uh, records pep talks for herself. And so anytime she needs to hear herself giving herself her pep talk, she's got a voice note that she can access. So I think there there are tools that we can Mm -hmm. use to support ourselves uh, and becoming better friends with ourselves for sure. And it shows how important your language is. Words over time get to you in a way. And so it's really important to learn to change those words. 100%. Because your words are your mental paradigms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And also, if you think about this, this was mind blowing for me. It may not be for the listeners, but it was about a year and a half ago, I think, or two years ago, I realized that I don't see myself as a protagonist. Meaning, when I visualize the future and I visualize possibilities, I often don't see and visualize me as a leader in that mental image. I'm not even in the picture. It's very cool that you notice that. That shows like the fact that you're like reflecting on it and thinking about it. It's important to recognize those areas in yourself, right? And then yeah. figuring out where the gaps are. Yeah. And how do we undermine ourselves? Mm-hmm. Not intentionally, but they do undermine ourselves. Yeah. Another thing that I realized was my relationship with money. I have um, done a lot of work to understand that I was repelling money because I thought money was the root of all evil. Money was a source of stress and tension in my home growing up. Capitalism sucks. And so I often um, repelled money, but that meant that I wasn't able to embrace my worth and Mm -hmm. be able to also accept and receive money that was coming to me for the work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so what are all these subtle ways that our beliefs actually um, support our growth or impede our path um, has been some of the biggest challenges throughout the last 10 years. Yeah, and you said it. They're very subtle, but they're very strong too, even though we don't notice it. Yeah. Now having we talked about, you know, the importance of passion and its ability to create social change and things like that. Where would you say you're directing your passion right now? Right now I am directing my passion towards uh creating better experiences for people to go from stuck to unstuck to motivated, to action. And so I've been able to do that through program design, where it's an eight-week process. It's called theory of passion. And people are able to explore their values. They're able to explore what makes them feel alive. They're able to explore their dreams in a safer and braver container that we co-create. And where I would like to go uh, with this is undetermined. I have no idea. I am open to seeing seeing what happens, really. I know there is a product and a program that um, works for some people, and I have better understanding of who this could serve. And I think with more opportunities to work with more people, I'll have a more refined idea of who this can serve the best, perhaps. But in terms of what's the next iteration 
of this program or maybe an adjacent program. At this point, I am open to possibilities and seeing what feels good, what's in alignment with my values. But what I am trying to do more of in 2022 is partnerships. I really want to co-create with more people and be able to build more conscious connections and relationships uh, where there are values like honesty, justice, uh, and play that is part of our working relationship and seeing what we co-create. That's very exciting to hear. And I like how you're still exploring it and like learning about it. Definitely. Moving away a little bit from, you know, work and career and stuff, or actually before we move away, I did want to touch up on one more thing. And that's the Ikigai, which you emphasize in your workshops to help people when you're passion coaching. And before we get into that, I was wondering, do you want to explain a little bit of what Ikigai is? Because I don't think it's a concept that a lot of people are familiar with. Ikigai is a Japanese word. It means your reason for being. So what makes you wake up in the morning? What motivates you? In other words, what's your purpose? And people context constantly changes. And so Ikigai is not meant to mean what is your purpose for the rest of your life? (laughs) It's in this moment, what might be your reason for being right in this moment. And there's a framework using this concept of Ikigai that explores four questions. One is what do you love? What are you great at? What does the world need? And what is the world willing to pay for? And it's like a Venn diagram at the intersection of these four circles, four considerations might be where your current Ikigai reside. And so using this tool, you're able to figure out, okay, what do I love? What brings me joy? What gives me energy? What gets, you know, gets me excited? And then what are you great at? Looking at your skills, your strengths, your gifts. And then you look at what does the world need, right? Um, You mentioned before how I was able to tap into something that I needed, which then turned into passion coaching. So what are the things that I need, but also what are the things that the world needs, that our community needs, our neighborhood needs? What are the problems we're trying to solve? And then because we live in a system where we need to make a certain amount of money for our homes, uh, you know, roof over our heads, you know, food in a capitalist system, what can we be paid for? And how much money do we need to make? And what are the intersection of these four that will allow us to be able to do the things that we love, that we're good at, that the world also needs, but also be paid for that? And so I've been able to use this framework for my own life. And I've been able to offer this and use this to support other people and seeing what might be at the in the middle of those four considerations. Okay. So when I was, I was introduced to this by you earlier, or maybe last year, end of year. But something that I realized as I was like looking at it is that it's very easy to, I know you asked us to fill it out, right? And to like, think about the things that could fall under each category. Like, what are you good at? What do you love? And like what the world needs and so on and so forth. But what's something I noticed is that it's very easy to, in a way, adjust the things that you put in so that they align with what you think you're supposed to do. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, how do you break out of that? <laughs> that exact example happened for me. Maybe break out wouldn't apply for my situation, but the ways that I would adjust at least is by trying. So what I mean by that, that 
So there was a point in my life I did exactly that um, where I thought the thing that I really wanted in the middle of my ikigai was something that I should be doing in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it was through actually trying it in the real world. And I started uh, finding projects where I could do this. I started networking with people, telling them that was what I was doing. And within a year and a half, I was burned out. I was burnt out. I wasn't actually that great at it. I was good at it, but it wasn't something that I wanted to get great at because I wasn't actually, it wasn't something that I actually loved. I deeply cared about it. So it was aligned with my values and it paid really well. (laughs) So it was tantalizing, but if I was being honest with myself after having tried it, it wasn't something that I truly loved. And therefore, it, for me personally, it wasn't something that I, I wanted to invest time and effort into growing skills in. And so that's how I would use that framework to figure out, oh, actually, I think I wanted that because of what so-and-so thought of me and thought that I could, but it's not really something I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where honesty becomes very important. And I think it probably is like one of the hardest parts of it, because I think there's a fear of admitting that you no longer want something. And now you have like, you're, 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 there's a fear of, you know, pushing aside all the expectations that others have of yourself and then pushing aside your perspective on how people might be judging you for doing what you want to do and like pushing all of that aside and asking yourself what you truly want. And that might be very hard to do, but I think it all boils down to being honest with yourself. Yeah. And, and to your point, it is very, very hard to do. Right. And um, switching jobs, working on a project that ends. I mean, I think there's different reasons why um, I felt like a failure at different points in my life. But if I look back and if I didn't choose to take those learnings and pivot, right? It's like, okay, I tried it, but that's not really what I want to do and actually give myself permission to pivot. I wouldn't be where I am today, right? And so, mm-hmm. but it was very hard to do. The, the voice in my head was, oh my God, what are people going to think? They're going to think that I'm not reliable. They're going to think that I am ABC. They're not going to want to work with me. And all those thoughts and sometimes the real experiences from people sharing that feedback to you is hard. It's very hard. And and people on average have seven different jobs now, right? And I think uh, younger generation, maybe even more. Mm-hmm. And as we're going through this massive change, um, and in particular uh, in a country like Canada, where they're saying that we might be going through a great resignation with more and more people leaving their jobs for different reasons, like toxicity um, and unsafe health standards at the workplace and other very important and valid reasons. I think that this is the time. This is this is a time for us to examine and be able to try different things, create, um, maybe start something different because we're in a time where we're asking ourselves some of these harder questions and more and more of us are trying to give ourselves permission to experiment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, you're, you're very right when you say that we're in a, in a point in time where people have like seven jobs because we're no longer at a time where 
you're supposed to start with a job out of university and that's the job that you end up retiring from. You notice a lot of people have like a very ups and downs and you know they try this, they don't like it anymore, they go to something else. And it's really nice to see that, you know, those are things that we think about within ourselves, but you know, seeing it in other people and seeing that they also think about it too, that we're really not alone in thinking these things. Yeah. Yeah. And also we're so complex, right? We're so complex and we're always changing. Yeah. One day we feel like this, the next day it might feel different or one day we're really into this and the next day we're not really into that. And that's okay. So how do we allow ourselves to be more flexible and trying mm-hmm. different things out and give ourselves the permission again to explore? Because in school, college, university, I, at least when I was in school, I didn't get a lot of opportunity to try different things, you know? So how could, how could we know? How could we know without trying? And people's perceptions, people's judgment can be there. And um, sometimes the judgment that, that I received was coming from a place of protection because they wanted the best for us, for us to feel security, for us to feel stable, for us to have safety. And I appreciate that care and love. And sometimes it was coming from their own projections. So let's say they feel like they can't do certain things and they see me doing it. So then there's projection of different emotions being projected onto me. And sometimes it's none of the, none of those things and it's something else altogether. And so all of those experiences have been helpful for me because I was able to take those challenges and and learn from them. And sometimes those challenges were so heavy that I didn't want to pursue the things that I actually wanted to. Um, And I can go back in time and even those pauses were helpful, right? In Mm -hmm. hindsight. But I will say this about my experience, and this is obviously different for everybody, but my experience, if I go back and I look at my journals and I look at some of the ideas that I had, or if I look at my folders on my laptop, um, if I look at some of the brainstorming sessions that I have with my friends on some of the things that we want to try... I've had some common themes or common ideas repeated at different junctures in my life. And passion coaching has always been there since after university. That's 10 years where this idea has recycled over and over and over and over again. And every point I'm like, but what will people think if I go into this? Well, I need more training or I need more certification. All of those things are real and valid. And I am ready now, right? So will I take that leap now? And that leap is strategic and smart and doesn't have to be me throwing everything away and jumping into the abyss without a financial safety because that's not feasible for me. So if it's not feasible, how can I plan around it, right? And how how can I ensure that I'm good, that people around me are good financially while I build out this practice? So there's, there's ways to make sure that our passions and the things that bring us joy or the things that we really want to work on um, can be developed strategically with thoughtfulness, um, with patience, and in a way that is feasible. Mm -hmm. When you took that leap, would you say you were very ready? No, no. I was giving myself five years to build this out. I was basically forced to do it in a year and I was not ready. But in hindsight, I think I needed that push And I am so happy that I'm here. (laughs) I say that because I noticed that a lot of the times when I do take a leap, I'm never actually fully ready for it. And thinking that I'll at some point in my life be ready for it is an excuse for me to push it aside until I think I'm quote unquote ready. 
But yeah, it's nice to see that you really are never really fully ready to do something unless you push yourself to do it. And you learn along the way. Yeah, you learn along the way. And also, you know, there's that analogy of jump and, you know, build the plane while you're falling. Mm -hmm. You know that analogy? Yeah. That one I don't really like because like, okay, well, for some people they can do that. But like, I need I need to make sure that there is some financial safety net here. (laughs) Um, You know, it's not just for me. So I, I, I do think that we can jump into the abyss or jump with some plan not being fully ready, but also being strategic about having some safety mm-hmm. and whatever that means for different people. It could be financial safety. It could be psychological safety. It could be emotional safety, whatever it means for you to be able to make sure that your needs around safety are met when we do that, because it's, it's, it, it can bring up so many things uh, when we do do that. It can bring up fear. It can bring up doubt. It can bring up insecurities. It can bring up potentially trauma for some people. It can bring up worries and stress and anxiety. There's just so many things that can come because it is change. Change is hard for many Mm -hmm. of us. So I do think that there's ways for us to create a plan around supporting us through those motions while also remembering that the reason why we're taking that risk is because we know that on the other side, there could potentially be more joy, more alignment, more fulfillment, more play, Mm -hmm. more happiness, more fun fear. Something that would allow you to grow as a person rather than just stay in that cycle back and forth. Yeah. So shifting a little bit from passion in terms of like career goals and things like that, you do bring up your husband several times throughout the interview, and that's because he is an important aspect of your life. How would you say your passion and you know the things that you've learned about your passion played out in your relationship with him? That's an excellent question. So when we first met, we met through work and we met at the Center for Social Innovation And so it was not a a place where we wanted to explore romantically because we were working professionally. And Mm -hmm. and so we decided, even though we had attraction for each other, that we weren't going to pursue something romantic. And so we shut that down, that possibility at the beginning. And then a year later, uh, Adol reached out to me and we were having a conversation where he said, chill, if there's any feelings... I would like us to talk about it and see if there's a way for us to explore this in a way that feels ethical and it feels uh, good for us, given that we work together. And that year, I was practicing vulnerability. This was right after watching Brene Brown on vulnerability, and I was really inspired. And I realized I, I, I realized that I was really good at suppressing emotions. But because out of necessity, growing up, I had to uh, learn how to suppress my emotions to get things done. And so what that meant was that I haven't had a lot of practice and muscles built around being vulnerable to emotions. And so that year, I told myself that was something I was going to practice. And when he had that conversation with me, my mind was like, no, this is no, 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 no. I was scared. Also, the complexity of like working together, you know, professionally and fears around love and commitment, all the things came up. But I asked myself, 
how was I feeling? And one of the feelings that came up strongly was passion. So then I said, okay, let's give this a try. And the rest is history. I mean, like I proposed to him, we're married. How did proposing to him feel like? (laughs) Oh my goodness. This is a whole other story because I grew up for whatever reason. I thought, okay, one day I'm going to get married, have children, then we'll get a divorce and then I'll be happy. I have had a lot of commitment issues and sometimes it still shows up in our relationship. Uh, I have fears around commitment. I have fears around getting hurt. I used to hate going on weddings. Like there is a lot of healing that I have to do around Mm -hmm. love, this kind of love. And so what did it feel like for me to propose to him was that I was resisting marriage with him, even though I loved him and I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him. And all of that to me was clear, but where I was not clear was, do I want to get married? Because that means I'll feel trapped. And that means I will, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all these stories and emotions that came up for me around that. And not to say that uh, we need to get married in order to live together for the rest of our lives. We don't need to get married for that. Right. But for Dylan and I, we wanted something to mark to as a ceremony to Mm -hmm. mark um, and be witnessed Um, our commitment. So there was something beautiful around wanting to have that kind of ceremony. And yet I was fearing that even though I desired it. So, so that proposal was important for us because Dill was ready. He was, he told me he was ready. He's like, you know, whenever you're ready. And also there was also that possibility that we might not get married to mark the occasion. Mm -hmm. And then one day he went to Vipassana for a week, which is a silent meditation experience. And so we weren't together and I was at home doing, doing so many different creative projects and enjoying solitude. Uh, But closer to the end, I was starting to really miss him. (laughs) And I was counting down, not just the hours, but at some points, the seconds, And on the last day, so the next day he was coming in the morning, the last night that I was by myself and I had up on the wall a sticky note that said creative projects because I wanted to spend that night brainstorming some stuff around work that I was doing. But all I could think about was how I would propose to him. And so I knew, I knew intuitively, I knew my body was ready and I, I knew it was time. And I knew I had that knowing, but to your point, I wasn't fully ready. There was still like that 10%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, the proposal itself is also a whole story because my friend Shazia Abji uh, designed the proposal and then Shazia and Jared Siegel co-facilitated it. Um, so it's a whole other story, but I will just say at a high level, the, the proposal itself had grapes uh, there were quotes from the alchemist and also a strategy session for Dylan and I for our future planning, as well as a rooftop kiss while the sun was setting. So it was really romantic. So moving a little bit away from all of this so far, we haven't talked about your childhood, your present. Moving on to we talked a little bit about your future, but the last thing I want to ask you is, do you think you've reached your fullest potential? I think I'm becoming more me. I feel more comfortable in my body. I feel more confident in my limitations. 
I feel more grateful for being alive and grateful for my day to day, even on days when things are hard. So to answer your question, do I think I've reached my fullest potential? I think that I am becoming more me. I am reaching a point in my life where I am alive and I'm grateful to be alive. And that in and of itself helps me be more present. And I remember one of my mentors, Clarence Ford, reminded me that, you know, it's in the small day-to-day moments that really matter. You know, we often think of these grandiose ambitions, but he said it's in the small, these very small interactions and moments in your life that really matter. And that has resonated with me. And it's also something I'm trying to practice more is how do I be and how do I be more me and how do I show and practice my values um, in these small moments and my day-to-day And for that, I do think it is me achieving more of me and my potential uh, by being unapologetically, but also in in a more freeing way, be more me who I am, my messy, uh, contradictory versions of me um, in the small and large ways, uh, but also for for me to accept that, for me to learn to accept that, um, that makes me believe that I am, I don't know if reached my full potential is a way I would describe it, but definitely I am relishing in the potentiality and it feels very delicious. And that wraps up our episode for today. I really hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll be the first to know when each episode is released. It would also mean the world if you could leave a rate and a review. You can also feel free to follow on Instagram at htdipodcast or send me an email at htdipodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and I'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.